Philippians chapter 4 is our passage as we continue in our series, The Life of Peace. Uh, We've entitled this sermon, Christian Practices Part 2. You might remember that last week we looked at the first four verses and four descriptions that Paul gave of the church. He said that the task of the church was to labor in the gospel. The posture of the church was to stand fast in the Lord, stand fast in the faith. The position of the church was to have the same mind or to be unified around Christ. And then the outlook of the church was to rejoice in the Lord, as verse 4 said. And now he's going to give two more descriptions in verses 5 to 9. And the first is the disposition of the Christian. The disposition or the characteristic of the Christian is to be one of gentleness. In verse 5, he says this. After he tells them to rejoice in the Lord, he says, Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Now, if we were not careful to look at these nine verses uh, diligently and try to connect them up, we might think they're just scattered commands with no real connection to each other. But actually, what we'll find, both last week and this week, is that each of them is connected to the other. And this one of gentleness, the disposition of the Christian being one of gentleness, is no exception. Gentleness in this passage means moderation or self-restraint. This is not saying someone who has no backbone or won't stand up for what's right. It's not that sort of lazy, pushover sort of individual. Because we remember that the same person he's telling to be gentle in spirit here is the same one he just told in verse 1 to stand fast in the Lord. So this gentleness also has a strength behind it. So what he means by this gentleness or moderation, as some translations have it, is a capacity to differentiate between what's vital and what's not, and to stand like a rock on what's vital, but to be reasonable or gentle on what is not vital, on secondary matters. The gentle Christian is one who's not always grasping, doesn't always have to be proved right, we might say. He has forbearance, patience. He refuses to be easily offended. Not everything has to become a dramatic episode with the gentle Christian. Isn't it interesting in our culture, this, is, this description is the exact opposite of our culture. It seems like every issue these days has to be a level one issue. Everything has to be a point of drama. Everything has to lead to an argument online. But the Christian who has this characteristic of gentleness, which all Christians are supposed to have as they grow and mature, should not be such an individual. To be gentle or moderate means that when you come into contact with people who irritate you or are difficult to get along with, you have a sort of shock shock absorber built into your Christian character. That means when that fellow Christian who doesn't know how to interact with people, maybe they have some social awkwardness, maybe they're just a prickly personality, Maybe your personality and theirs just don't connect very well. What does a gentle Christian do in such instances? What they do is they come up, so to speak, with an explanation in their mind for those deficiencies. Not by excusing the deficiencies, and we're not talking about sin here. We're talking about a sort of personality conflict. It's the Christian who extends a gracious verdict to that other Christian. Instead of when they say something that's just a little off, a little awkward, uh, it, it could be taken in an offensive way, you immediately as a Christian think, you know, I mean, as a fellow Christian, I'm, I'm sure they're not trying to attack me with that one. I, I, I'm going to give them the gracious benefit of the doubt. 
in this instance. It's considering them in a gracious way the way you and I would want to be considered if and when we do something or say something that could be taken in the wrong way. It's a Christian who refuses to rush to a harsh judgment and instead tries to understand and also to help. Do you see how this command is linked with what happened before? Because back in verse 2, you had two women who were in conflict, and it was causing disunity in the church. Well, clearly, these two women, for whatever the exact issue was, they were not practicing this level of gentleness, this level of understanding and graciousness, being slow to anger, slow to take offense. Had they been practicing this, there wouldn't have been an issue in the first place. Do you become easily offended? As a Christian, we really shouldn't, certainly not by another Christian. Paul is calling the Philippian Christians to once again look out for the interests of others, to think of others before they think of themselves. That's what he said back in Philippians chapter 2. In this age of excess in which we live, where people's terrible behaviors are excused time and time again at every turn, the Christian is, to, is called to, to do and be something different, to self-restrained gentleness in every situation. And not too long ago, I was watching a bit of a documentary about Captain Cook's voyages. And what I found so fascinating, among other things, some beautiful landscapes, some interesting history, uh, and it was nice to see it in visual perspective after having read of him. And yet, when it came to a particular island that he visited, where the people uh, had some cannibalistic tendencies, the individual who is uh, doing this documentary, he tried to defend the cannibalistic actions. They, well, they weren't really cannibals because they only ate people sometimes. I thought, do, do you hear yourself? That is the definition of a cannibal. He was trying to excuse for political correct reasons. Well, no, it, it's okay. Well, no, something like that is not okay. And the excesses of modern human beings in our society, we often excuse away as well. But the Christian, the gentle Christian, does not, does not excuse them, certainly not sinful things, but they do have a self-restrained gentleness. They're not easily offended by things. I find it humorous as a pastor that uh, oftentimes if I'm interacting with someone who does not yet know I'm a pastor, um, they'll say a few things, we're just having a conversation, whatever it is, perhaps it's uh, the parent of um, one of my child's classmates or something like that, have a great conversation, they make a few comments, they're being themselves, and then they find out I'm a pastor. And all of a sudden, the apologies start rolling in. Oh, I'm so sorry for what I said earlier about whatever. And, and I find it so humorous, as if, I'm not sure to take it as a compliment or to take it as a bit of a jibe, and I'm sure they mean it well, but I think to myself, do you really think I'm that easily offended? I've heard a lot worse. But all of a sudden, it's, it's this oddity. Well, we shouldn't be ones who take easy offense. The supreme example of this is Jesus, isn't it? Remember what 1 Peter chapter 2 says? Christ suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow in his steps. What were his steps? Well, he who did not sin... Neither was guile found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, did not revile again. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him, God the Father, who judges justly. Jesus 
was the epitome of strength and yet the epitome of gentleness. And the Christian is to be the same. And we're told something else here, not just be gentle, Christian, but also the reason for it. Because at the end of verse 5, he tells us that the Christian's confident expectation is that Christ will return. The Lord is near, he says. That is, his return could happen at any time. Now, if you think this existence, this earthly life that you have, is the only existence, then of course you're going to fight to the last moment in order to get your rights. And don't we see that around us? Everyone wants to play the victim. Everyone wants to fight for their rights and all of their rights and not give up any of their rights. But the Christian realizes that the 60 or 70 or 80 years or whatever God gives us on this earth is not all there is. And in comparison to eternity, it's quite small. And so the Christian doesn't feel the need then to fight for their rights. They can be gentle because they realize when that other person is, even if that other person is actively trying to bemean them or they are experiencing persecution, they realize that in light of eternity, it's actually quite a small thing. And that one day Jesus will return and he'll put everything right and we can wait for him. Now this is not saying that a Christian should never stand up for what is right or that they shouldn't maybe have a legal case in certain instances to fight back under the law. It's not saying that. It's not saying to be a pushover. But it's just saying as a general rule, we don't need to take such easy offense. The Christian knows what Romans 12, 19 says, that vengeance is mine, God says, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, Christians can be gentle and moderate. If you truly know that God will judge accurately, then far from being incensed when people treat you inappropriately, you'd rather feel sorry for them because they will have to stand before God one day and he judges sin justly. And so far from being upset when that person cuts you off and gives you a rude gesture, as you're driving home from work or from school pickup, far from getting incensed and frustrated, you should actually feel sorry for them. Think of the, the children they may be going home to who are going to have to receive that anger from that parent. Think of the fact that they will have to stand before God on Judgment Day and, hold, and be held accountable for that anger. It should actually lead us to pray for them and for their eternal welfare. But not only is this disposition of a Christian one of gentleness, but secondly... The state of the Christian is one of reliance on God. Look at verse 6. Verse 6, he says, Don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And then verse 7. The peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. He says the state of a Christian is to be one of reliance on God. And this comes with a promise, the peace of God. It's the heart and mind that tend to produce this anxiety he talks about. He says, don't be anxious, but rather do this. Where does anxiety come from, though? Well, it comes from the heart and mind. We might say the imagination. What's our tendency as loving parents when our child gets hurt or sick, especially when they're young? After examining the issue, we quickly contend towards the what-ifs. What if that cough turns into something more serious? What if that cut all of a sudden gets infected? What if what I thought was a small thing actually ends them up in the hospital, and I didn't do everything, and I will be a failure as a parent? We go into this what-if strategy in our mind, this imagination. 
which keeps us up at night. I see some of the parents smiling. We've all experienced this, but it's not just a parent thing. Each and every one of us does this in so many areas of life. What if I don't get that promotion? What if I don't get this job? What if I, what if I don't complete my course with the grades I want? We, we then go into our mind and we have this sort of feedback loop of anxiety. What's happening there? We're allowing our hearts and our minds to master us and tyrannize us. And even when we want to shut off our brains in those moments, we can't seem to do it. The worries just stay there and it keeps going in this return feedback loop. Yet, God promises that there can be peace for a Christian, that you can actually live a life that is not completely free of anxiety, but free of that anxious cycle that is so prevalent in our age. How can that be obtained? Well, he gives the procedure in verse 6. He says, don't be anxious, but he doesn't just leave it there. Of course, that wouldn't be very helpful, would it? We know we shouldn't be anxious. We don't want to be anxious. We wish we could stop being anxious. So just telling us to stop it doesn't help us. So he gives a procedure. Now, before we get to the procedure, it might be helpful to understand that many of us and humankind in general lives according to what we might call the tyranny of our circumstances. They see themselves as being acted upon and not having much agency. But the Christian is not being held hostage by circumstances. Why? Because the Christian has God as their Lord and Savior, and he is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-wise. He is capable. He is over every circumstance. And we are promised that not a single thing, not a single circumstance, can come into our life except he allows it. And if he has allowed it, then there must be some good that he wants to come from it, and that will come from it if we will submit to it. So therefore, we don't have to be defined by what happens to us in this world as a Christian. Rather, we are defined by who we are in Christ, regardless of our external circumstances. So then what is the procedure for turning this anxiety loop into the peace of God through reliance on God? Well, it's first that the Christian should pray. He says, pray, petition, and thanks, or thanksgiving. Now, prayer in this passage means, uh, broadly speaking, worship and praise of God. Now, often when we're troubled, if we go to God in prayer as a Christian, what's the first thing we do? God, please take away the trouble. Take away the circumstance. That's normal. That's natural. That's what every single one of us, by default, is probably going to do. Now, first off, if you're a Christian, and when troubles come, you try to figure it out yourself and don't take it to the Lord, or you take it to the Lord in prayer as a last resort only after you've tried to figure it all out yourself, then that's a problem. Because that is not the way that you should go about it. But even for many of us as Christians, when we go to the Lord first, the first thing we're doing, or the only thing we're doing when we go to the Lord, is God, take away the bad circumstance. I don't like it. But that's not what he says here. He says, begin by worship and praise. Begin by worship and praise. You see, the process must begin with a humble worship, praising God for who he is and what he's done and reminding ourselves in the process of who he is and what he's done. As Psalm 91 says, come into his presence with singing and praise. Now, why does that step need to be first, logically? Well, because we have to be reminded of who God is before we can deal with whatever issue is there that we want to deal with. We have to remember who we're going to in prayer, who we're talking to, 
because that is going to inform what we ask and how we ask. But then secondly, the petition, the request. Here's what I'm asking for, Lord. And this is probably the part that we find the most easy of of the three. God, here's what I actually want you to do. But notice it has to come after worship and praise and an understanding of who God is. And then thirdly, there needs to be a praise or thanksgiving. When you approach God in prayer, Christian, there must be no doubt in your heart of his goodness and that he has promised, as the book of James says, to give good gifts to his children. If you go to him begrudgingly, God, I don't really think you're going to do anything here, but I know as a Christian I'm supposed to pray to you, so here it goes. That's not the proper way to approach him. And at the very least, if you can think of nothing else to be thankful for in, the, in that moment, and especially when we're going through a significant challenge or trial, oftentimes we just find it quite difficult in our spirit to be grateful for much of anything, even though we know we should. But even as a last resort, we can be thankful for the most important thing. What is that? The Christian can always be thankful to God for their salvation. The fact that he sent his son to deal with our sin problem, even though he had to die on the cross to do it. To purchase our salvation and to rise from the dead for our justification. Surely that should cause us to be grateful and thankful. So Paul tells us to pray. To make our request and then to praise and thank God. And then to trust God to do something. There's an old phrase that some Christians use. Prayer changes things. And certainly we understand what they mean by that, but that's actually not what the New Testament says. God changes things. He tells us to pray, yes, but it's, it's God is the agent who changes things, not my prayer. But he tells us to pray and then to trust him and to submit it to his will and rely on him to do what's necessary. Notice also verse 8, the mind and the heart of the Christian is described here. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, Whatever is noble, whatever is right, pure, lovely, whatever is admirable, if there's anything excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. What an intriguing verse, and a wonderful verse to memorize and to remind yourself to dwell on such things. But this is not just a list of nice ideas. The New Testament never tells a Christian or a church to contemplate just ideas about themselves. Rather, it tells us about ideas, yes, about values, about truths that we should consider, but it links it to a person, to Jesus. So, what this is telling Christians is that our whole way of thinking and the actions that flow from that way of thinking should be ordered and controlled by the gospel. That's what he's saying. And as he's just about to tell us in verse 9, you need to act out what you believe. So this is not just sit at home, sit in the lotus position and meditate and think about really nice positive things. That's not what he's saying. He's saying apply the gospel to your life, to your challenges, to your anxieties, to your conflicts with other individuals. As Christian people, all our thoughts, ideas, and actions must be under the control of the mighty God and Savior Jesus. How do we submit our lives and our actions and our activities to God? Well, at least one way is by giving over to him all of our anxieties, like he's just told us. And now, verse 9, he's going to tell us to act out 
what we believe and what God has done for us. Look at verse 9. After telling us how to think and what type of things to think about, he says, whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. So how do we get that peace of God? How do we have an assurance that God's peaceful presence is with us? Well, we have to follow what he says in this passage. The gospel is not something that we just add to our life. Many people think Jesus is just an add-on to life. But rather, the gospel is something that should entirely dominate our life. It redirects and radically changes everything in our life. Where we're, when we are controlled by Christ and living out the gospel, then the peace of God will follow. Therefore, if we don't have the peace of God right now, then the question is, Am I not being controlled by God? Am I not living out the gospel? Where is the fault? Because the fault is not with him, for he always keeps his promises. The fault lies somewhere with me and my actions. In verse 8, Paul tells us about the realm of a thought life, but thoughts are not enough. And we're told in a passage like John 13, 17, if you know these things, the truth of God, the gospel, happy are you if you do them, Jesus says. As a Christian... You will not be happy or really experience the peace of God merely by knowing the truths of God. Christian doctrine is important, but if you only have Christian doctrinal truths in your head, no matter how correct they are, if it never affects your daily life, you will not experience the peace of God. It's a sad testimony to the state of academics these days that there are many individuals, both at quasi-Christian schools as well as secular schools, who are well-versed in the Bible, well-versed in Christian theology, high-level academics who've written many articles and books in the field, they know true Orthodox Christian doctrine. They know the facts about Jesus in their head, but they have completely and utterly rejected Jesus in their heart. They know more theology than you and I probably ever will, but it does them no good. Why? Because it's not applied theology. True Christian doctrine, true Christian theology is applied. And if it's not being applied, then it's a counterfeit, no matter how orthodox. How many Christians don't consistently experience the peace of God? Because they're not practicing Christianity in action. Practice means to do as Paul says. The Christian is to learn and receive and hear and see in me. Essentially what he's saying is this. Thank God I've known these blessings of the gospel in my own life. I've experienced them. And I want you to know and experience and practice all these things as well. And I want you to receive the benefit. So he's, he's eager and desirous that the Christians there receive benefit. What are some of these actions to which we should pay attention, close attention, and practice in order to receive the peace of God? Well, notice that if we had time, we could go back through all these nine verses, and what you would notice time and time again, as well as the whole book, is it all hinges around our attitude to God and our understanding of God. If you have a false view of God, you'll have false practice. You must have a right view of God, a right understanding of who he is, which leads you then to the practical outcome. How does a Christian grow to know and glorify God more? Because you remember that Paul said, I want to know him, the power of his resurrection. I want to get to know him better, and I want to follow him more fully. That was his prayer. That was his goal. And if we want that as our goal as well, how do we do it? 
Well, the first step, if we look throughout the New Testament, the whole Bible really, looked at great Christians throughout history, you'll see the same process time and time again. It's, as the saying goes, it's not rocket science. It's quite simple, but it's challenging to do. Here's the process. We have to be reading as much as we can of God's revelation, God's textbook. We have to be in the Word. If you want to know God better, the primary place that you must go to know Him better is to read your Bible. Spend your time in the Scripture and work at understanding them. As Peter says, desire the pure milk of the Word so that you can grow. Do you see both elements? Desire the Word... Be in the word, meditate on the word, so that, not just so that you can get more information in your head, but so that you can grow by it. Grow to know who God is and grow to respond to what the word tells you. Most of us, I dare say, have at least one physical Bible on the shelf at home. Perhaps you're holding it right now. Perhaps we have more than one. I was just doing a bit of an inventory. Some of you know I'm a bit of a bibliophile. And so uh, I have 50 copies of the Bible at home in different editions, different translations, different study Bibles, different times in history, different languages, some of them. But you know, all those Bibles on the shelf don't do me a single bit of good if I never pick up one and read it. I wish we could get it through osmosis. I used to wish as a kid that my superpower would be that I could put, put a book under my head, a textbook from school usually, put a book under my, my pillow when I went to bed and that I would just learn it all in my sleep. But of course, that's not the way it works, is it? We have to actually open up the textbook. In this case, the textbook, so to speak, of God's word. We have to be in the Bible, reading it, studying it, meditating on it for the purpose of obeying it. And let me just give a bit of a suggestion or challenge to those who are Christians. If you are a maturing Christian, although you may not start here in your early Christian journey, there's really no reason that a Christian should not be reading the Bible through at least once a year. I'm not saying that as some legalistic standard so you can just check it off a list. I'm saying if you want to know God, you need to be in his word. His word is clear, it's present, it's there. You have it physically, digitally, both. There's no reason you can't read it or read it and listen to it on your commute. There's no reason you can't read it through once a year or something like that. Now, you may not start there. If you're a new Christian, don't get overwhelmed by that. Just start where you're at. But you need to be reading it each and every day and applying it each and every day. Now, the next obvious step is the step of prayer. And, of course, it goes with Bible reading. If you like a person, you want to spend time with that person. And if you want to know God better, you need to spend time with God in his word and in prayer. John Calvin has a great quote here in this regard. He says, a well-ordered life regulated by God's word alone through Christ alone, by faith alone, for God's glory alone, is the only answer for anxiety. He's exactly right. A well-ordered life regulated by God's word alone. Would that describe you? Does it describe me? Not nearly as often as it should. A well-ordered life regulated by God's word alone. When we have anxiety, when we fail to experience the peace of God, it's almost always linked to the fact that we're not spending time with God 
We don't know his heart and mind because we're not spending time with him and we're not practicing it. But there's a third element, which is the attitude of the Christian towards himself. We have Bible reading, we have prayer, and our attitude toward ourself or our understanding of ourself. To realize our own sinfulness and to humbly do our utmost to mortify the flesh, to put to death the sins in our life. As Hebrews 12 says, lay aside every sin and the weight which holds us back from running the race. You know, I, I look back several years ago when going through a challenging time, and I know many of you have experienced episodes in your life. If you've been a Christian for several years, you've experienced episodes of trial, temptation, challenges. And when you experience those, I remember back to one that I experienced. And it was quite challenging for about a three-month period of time. I spent a load of time in prayer, spent a good amount of time with the Bible open. But in retrospect, the reason I felt like God was not hearing me, and that was even part of my prayer, Lord, it seems like my prayers are just bouncing off the ceiling right back to me. Why aren't you listening? Why won't you take this away? I realized two things in retrospect. One is that all I really cared about was having the, the circumstance taken away. And in that case, I wasn't actually worshiping God. I just wanted him to do what I wanted, which meant I wanted to be God. So I wanted to use God for my purposes instead of submitting to God to his purposes. That was the first thing. And secondly, at the same time, I was also struggling with some temptations and I was not in any way, shape, or form mortifying the flesh or resisting those temptations because in my mind, although I wouldn't have said it this way at the time, well, if God's not going to help me, then I'm not going to do what he says. Well, it's a little wonder then that I didn't experience the peace of God for those months. It's a little wonder that I had this anxiety loop constantly keeping me awake. It's a little wonder then of the results. You see, if even when we do certain Christian practices, if we are not doing them in the way God says to do them, in sort of the, the proper order or sequence, then we certainly can't make a claim on God. God, you promised your peace. Why aren't you giving it? And his answer to us is, I told you how to get it, but you won't follow what I told you. The reward, though, when we do follow what he says, is the peace of God will be with you. You know, I've never met a Christian, and this is anecdotal, I will confess that, but I, I have the privilege, of course, as a pastor to meet many Christians, and I've never met a Christian or counseled with a Christian who was actively mortifying the flesh, actively studying God's word for the purpose of obeying it, actively having a consistent prayer life daily, who was consistently in that sort of anxiety feedback loop, who was consistently not experiencing the grace and the peace of God. The way is clear, but as someone has said, the way of Christianity is often rejected by many, even by many Christians, not because they've tried it and found it lacking, but because they think it's hard and so they've left it untried. The procedure here is very clear, but many of us see it as hard. We have to humble ourselves and submit to God and his leading, and so we leave it untried. And then it's easy for us in our spirit to blame God for the resulting lack of peace and the overwhelming anxiety. Are we following God's procedure? The Christian, the good news is, the Christian 
can be gentle and gracious in relationship with others as they await the Lord's return. And furthermore, we have this gracious and glorious promise of the peace of God. So walk with God, Christian. And if you walk with God, his peace will be with you. Difficulties will arise, no doubt, but he will quench them. He will deal with them. That doesn't always mean he will take them away, but he will be with you through them. Whatever happens, he'll be with you. And as he says in Hebrews chapter 13, 5, I will never leave you or forsake you. And so one day we can look back, as Psalm 23 says, from the hill where we're standing at the end and say, now I can see. I couldn't see it in the minute. At the moment, when I was going through the valley, I couldn't see it. But now I see that his goodness and mercy have followed me all the days of my life. And now I have the prospect to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Are you experiencing anxiety or lack of peace? Well, if you're not a Christian, then there can be no long-lasting peace or objective peace in your life without Christ. He alone can give that peace that passes all human understanding as he's promised. He alone has made peace with God for you through his sacrifice on the cross. So you must first come to him. But if you're a Christian and currently not experiencing that peace, then Perhaps you need to go back and start where Jesus told you to start, as he gives us in this book, obeying God's process, which is guaranteed to lead to peace. May we be Christians who are, as verse 4 said, rejoicing in the Lord always, even in the midst of trials and temptations and anxieties, gentle and gracious, and living a peace-filled life that Jesus alone can offer. Let's pray. Lord, give us your peace. We long for that life of peace, to be those who have a steady anchor, a sure foundation. No matter what life throws at us, if we know you will return and make everything right, that you are a good God who only gives good gifts, and even if they're challenging times at the moment, you have our good in mind. You want to work in us some form of Christ's likeness that we don't yet possess. Help us to submit to you in those times, to seek you through your word and prayer and application of biblical truth. May we come to you in praise first and foremost, knowing that you are the holy God who inhabits eternity, and then make our requests, followed by thanksgiving for all you've done in the past. If you have saved us from our worst situation, our sin and separation from you, then surely you will help us with these lesser things. May we have great confidence and trust in you, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.